0: This episode of the Miriam Institute podcast features a conversation with retired General Stanley McChrystal. General McChrystal sat down with us for a long-form interview during which I asked him to share his perspectives on a number of issues. On the domestic front, I asked him to weigh in on the importance of national service and his desire to see that become an expected, though not mandated, part of the American Rite of Passage. I also asked him to reflect upon the impact of unpopular wars, such as the Vietnam War and the war in Iraq, and how such conflicts might impede the ability of the United States military to recruit the best and the brightest to military careers. On the Israel-US relationship, I asked the General to opine on the impact of the US decision to transfer Israel from the responsibility Command, or UCOM, to the responsibility of Central Command, or CENTCOM, and how the recently signed Abraham Accords might play into, and may have even precipitated, that decision. Internationally, the General expressed his view that a military strike on Iran is an unlikely option, and he also candidly offered his opinion that the United States is not well placed confront an ascendant China, absent strategic international alliances, and shared interstate objectives. I also asked General McChrystal to hearken back to his interview with Rolling Stone magazine, following which his storied military career came to an abrupt end. And he spoke of how that experience ultimately enriched his life and serves as a rare teaching opportunity and is demonstrative of the importance of accepting responsibility for one's actions, reflecting upon those actions and moving forward always, even in the face of adversity. Following our discussion, General McChrystal took questions from cadets and military faculty from the United States Military Academy at West Point. The cadets were all alumni of the annual Israel Strategy and Policy Tour Or ISAP, a unique initiative of the Miriam Institute that brings cadets of the US Military Academy at West Point, the US Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs, and students from Virginia Military Institute on a two day tour of the death camps in Poland, followed by a 12 day tour of the State of Israel. To learn more about and to invest in ISAP, please visit www.miriaminstitute.org forward slash We'd like to offer special thanks to the United States Military Academy for granting us the privilege of collaborating with them once again during the course of this interview. It's a fascinating conversation with a legendary American military leader. And as ever, I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands. General McChrystal, it's a real, real privilege for me to be able to interview. Welcome to the Miriam Institute, and thank you in advance of your time. Benjamin, my honor. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. So, I'd like to begin really by talking to you about something that I was shocked by. You know, an individual with your achievements gathers and as many a legend along the way throughout their course of service, but there's one legend that I really had trouble digesting, pen intended, and that's this idea of eating just one meal a day, uh, General McChrystal. Is, is that true? Is it false? How on earth did that habit come about if it actually is the truth?
1: No, it's absolutely true, and it's still true. Um, And everybody thinks it's some Zen thing. Actually, when I was a lieutenant, I I thought I was starting to get fat. And so I really began running as a hobby and I went to one meal a day and and I eat dinner. Now you gotta understand, I eat everything I can reach at dinner. (laughs) And so I'm not sure it's good for your health, but I've been doing it for 40 years. So if I change now, it could hurt me.
0: Well, I, I thank you for letting us know it's not a habit that I will emulate. (laughs) <laughs> but it is certainly that I'm sure there will be many other habits during the course of this call and many other principles that you'll impart and to us that I will be sure to emulate and, and to look to pay forward as well. So uh, I'd like to begin, General, with a with a, a quick question. In fact, I'm going to take you up on your kind offer to, for me to call you Stan, if that's OK. Please. Uh, so Stan, you, you began. I'd like to talk first of all about the notion of unpopular wars and what they might Uh, how they might impact upon the drafting of the best and the brightest into the military. So you, for example, began your military service, I believe it was right after the conclusion of the Vietnam War. And that war ultimately was viewed as unpopular. Uh, It was viewed as unpopular by many of the American service personnel and much of the American citizenry. I happen to be a combat veteran, Stan, of the Second Lebanon War of 2006, which was also deemed a very unpopular war by many of Israel's service personnel and citizens. But in Israel, regardless of the popularity of a given campaign, the national conscription model means that year on year, war after war, generation after generation, the military has the luxury of drafting the very best and the brightest and the most dedicated from among its citizenry. And it also has the opportunity to convince, doesn't always work, but to convince the best and the brightest of each draft to sign more time and to commit to a life of service within the military extended beyond the requisite draft. Now, that dynamic is not at play in the United States of America. And I'd like you to talk about how an unpopular war or a war that wanes and ebbs and flows in popularity, for example, like in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan, how that impacts upon the military's ability to continue to bring the best and the brightest into its ranks, if you would. I, of course, Benjamin. And I'm going to go back
1: and give a little bit of a, a history review to do that. We, we start maybe with World War II as a, an experience by the United States. Of course, 16 million people in uniform, every family touched pretty much unanimity on the need to fight the war. But it was also had a beginning and a middle and end that was pretty straightforward. We go forward to two things happen at once. The Cold War began, and that was sort of in the backdrop. And we had a draft throughout the Cold War. But then of course, the Korean War, which was very unpopular. The further we get from it, sometimes the less we understand just how unpopular it was in the United States. And so we had this idea that going to war far away for an objective that was less clear than many Americans viewed World War II, for example, was hard to stomach. We came into the Vietnam War where my father fought two tours and my brother fought. And that war had two issues to it. First was it wasn't very popular because the the nature of the war, although it was first cast as part of the Cold War and then cast as defending South Vietnam or helping South Vietnam defend itself. Americans get very frustrated by a lack of clear progress or the idea that America can win and will win sort an impatient people. And then we had a, a parallel issue that we ran a draft that was incredibly unfair. It was very much skewed to people who couldn't find a way to avoid it, either through marriage or through education or through whatnot. In fact, there are some extraordinary statistics during the entire Vietnam War. Not not a single son or daughter of a serving Congress member, member of Congress was killed. And yet something like 150 sons and daughters of general officers on active service were killed. And so what happens in the officer corps, you started this tradition of daughters and sons following fathers and, and going that way. But in the enlisted ranks, it was very much a certain number of volunteers, but other people who couldn't avoid the draft. So it was viewed as an unfair experience. We created the, the volunteer army after Vietnam, just as I was entering the military. There were still draftees serving, but the culture of the force changed. In many ways, it was a wonderful experience because everybody wanted to be there. The problem with that was much of America isn't there. There are zip codes in parts of America that literally are almost never represented in the military. There are certain spikes after 9-11 and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But if you look at a map of where America's enlisted force comes from, it comes geographically very focused in certain areas in the South and the Midwest. And whatnot. That's inherently unhealthy for a cause because you've got a force. I'm not going to call it a mercenary force because it's not that, but nor is it representative of the nation. Not everyone is invested in the outcome of the conflict and not everybody therefore understands it as well as they should. And particularly when the conflict drags on and it's difficult. Now in Iraq and Afghanistan, Unlike with the Vietnam experience, the American people didn't assign blame for the war to the warrior. In the Vietnam War, people were spit on as they came home. They went to airports. I mean, it was difficult to believe. I was a young junior high and high school student, but it was extraordinary. Now, there were some, there were some things like the My Lai Massacre and others that, that undercut belief. But the average service member went over, served honorably and bravely, came home and was treated poorly and treated poorly almost to this day. That didn't happen with Afghanistan and Iraq. Largely people, even those who opposed the war, made the decision that they wouldn't focus that frustration on the military. So the military has been put a bit on a pedestal. And sometimes I warn people, be careful, because the pedestal is not a comfortable place to be. We should be on an even, uh, level with the rest of society because the military should be a part of society, not a separate entity. And so two observations on this. First, when I commanded in Afghanistan and Iraq, I would fly around the bases and I would land at these little bases and there'd be 30 or 40 Americans and a like number of Afghans or Iraqis. And invariably, one of the, the young lieutenant or captain or senior NCO would be the son or daughter Of someone i was serving with invariably and that was kind of fun because you you hug them you knew them in high school that sort of thing but then you realize what we have is a very small group of people and their offspring basically populating the force that's that's not a healthy thing you need again to to have people from across the nation and as the war gets difficult, the danger is that the military becomes more insular, that the military starts to think, well, we're fighting this war, no one understands us, and the press is screwing us, or any number of of, uh, things. And once the military starts to feel Mm -hmm. self-righteous, and if you look at countries where the military, and I've been to many countries where the military will say, we are the one part of this society that believes in our nation, that are honest, that that protect democracy, and too often those militaries then seize control because they think they have a moral either obligation or authority to do that. And that's the danger of this. So the military, in my view, particularly if you're going to fight difficult wars, need to be literally cut from the fabric of the nation. Everybody's family should be at risk if we're going to make a decision to do it military operations. Sorry to go on so long, Benjamin. Thanks.
0: No, I I very much appreciate that answer. And and I I can already see from that answer, there are going to be numerous follow up questions that I'm not going to have the opportunity to ask you. But one that does actually lead on very, very nicely from that and one that's close to, to my heart and to the heart of the Miriam Institute altogether is the idea of national service general, though not necessarily by way of the military. Now, the state of Israel, again, has a system, as you know very well, of national service, the majority of which revolves around the military, but it's by no means exclusive to military service. So conscientious objectors might find work to undertake in a civil capacity, in a civic capacity elsewhere. The same with very religious members of Israeli society. But you believe very, very strongly in the virtue of national service, and what I would like to know is why you believe it to be a viable suggestion in the United States of America, because I, for example, am extremely supportive of an answer like that. And I've, I've read your comments on the notion of expected, though not compulsory service, which I think is a very, very interesting description I'd like you to, to speak to. But I'd like you also to talk to us about that description and why you feel nat- national service can help to bridge divides that run throughout the United States of America, as in many other societies indeed, and why national service can enable a participant to at once engage in a cause dear to their hearts, while also avoiding the pitfalls of creating even greater separation between themselves and their peers. An example of that actually is is couched in, in the answer to the previous question so for example military service is an aspect of national service it's venerated by most criticized by others but one of the aspects of military service is that it certainly i would say certainly creates a community that is distinct from the broader community throughout the united states of america so how would national service actually help to avoid that quandary while also giving the participant the opportunity to engage in something to which they feel a strong passion and purpose
1: well, no. thanks, Benjamin. I appreciate you bringing it up. First off, for those who aren't aware of what I believe, I think every young American should do one year of paid national service. Some people would go military, some would do it conservation, healthcare. There's a whole constellation of opportunities and more need to be given. The reason it needs to be a year of full time is you need to be all in. It needs to be inconvenient. It needs to pull you out of your world, put you there. It needs to be paid because right now the average people who do it are from upper middle class families and they're female, white females. And that's because a lot of people can't afford to be supported by their family or whatever during that year. So we need to make it a a living stipend for everyone. And therefore, it's absolutely equal. Now, I'll go on and put the mandatory versus uh, voluntary on the table. When I fantasize at night, I get in a room by myself in the dark, I fantasize about mandatory national service. So were I the king, that's the way it would be. But every time you ask any group of Americans, whether they're older Americans, you wouldn't do it for young Americans. If you put the name or the term mandatory next to it, support for it drops off dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so what I'd like to do is make it culturally expected. And the way I describe it is, you're one of those people you never want to go to a cocktail party and someone says, Sarah Martin, where did you serve? And you have to answer, uh, or you run for Congress and someone says, what'd you do? And you don't have an answer. So I do think the, when we get to a certain critical mass, you could get to that cultural expectation where people, even who weren't excited to do it, would do it because they just felt like they had to. And that's, of course, important. Now, why do I believe it's so important? First off, a nation is not something, I know some people agree, God did not create the United States of America. He didn't draw the boundaries and say, this is the United States, you all Americans. A nation is a covenant between the the citizens of that nation. It's an agreement to form a partnership with other people that says, we'll take care of each other. We'll defend each other. We'll look out for each other. With that, we get certain rights. We get privileges. We get things that come with that. But with that, those inalienable rights, we get inalienable responsibilities. And I think they're further than just fighting in a world war, and they're further than just voting or paying your taxes. They are being a part of the society and contributing and taking care of other, in our case, Americans. But where do you learn that you learn it through experience, sometimes through your parents, sometimes through your own. But what I would argue is whenever you have to invest in something, if you ever have to go pick up trash on a highway, you feel different about littering afterward. You know, it's just the way it is. You know, we all like children, but we like our own kids a lot more than we like other people's because we're responsible. So how do we create this sense of responsibility to the nation and to other Americans? And that's through an experience. And I would say, create these experiences where you pull people from different zip codes together, you know, different parts of America, because right now we have a tendency to to live with people in our income level, of our race, of our religion, of our, you know, any number of groupings. We really don't get out of it on a daily basis that much. Those of you who are in the military are going to be fortunate because the platoons and companies you're in are going to be much more of a mixture. But in today's volunteer army, even they will be far less representative than they would have been 50 years ago or during World War II. So how do we create that? And if we can create that shared experience, you suddenly find this phenomenon that who do you not like? You typically don't like people you don't know or people you think don't like you. You know, once you really get to know any group, you know, when I got up close to Afghans for many years or Iraqis, then my attitude toward them completely changed because they're people and they've got perspectives that are just as good as mine. So I think national service could be the way we get there. We are so divided as a nation, so partisan, Uh, right now and and increasingly vitriolic about it. If we can't create those shared experiences where we can create that sense of bonding and responsibility, I think we'll have even more problems uh, in the years ahead. And that's why I care so much
0: about it. Thank you. And, and I know that your conversation with the Biden administration or the incoming Biden administration focused on matters of national security and international strategy. But have you had an opportunity to moot this idea of, of required paid national service for one year? Is there appetite in the current administration for that?
1: Yeah, it's great. Thanks for asking that, too. We have been really, this got popular again about 1960. So about 60 years ago, this with the rise of the Peace Corps and whatnot, we started to make, and then it's waxed and waned over years. To be honest, the last 20 some years, Bill Clinton supported it to a degree. President George W. Bush supported it. but we could never get, we could never achieve orbit. We got to about 250,000 slots in the Serve America Act. Believe it or not, both the pandemic in its own negative way and the uh, the new administration give us great opportunity. There's now renewed excitement. Senator uh, Coons from Delaware mm-hmm. is pushing, you know, the, the core act right now. And if that gets through, we're going to get to another level, a much expanded level. And then I think we've got an opportunity to get it into our society as a, a regular long term thing. Sorry, I'm optimistic.
0: Well I, I certainly wish you every possible success with that initiative. It's extremely virtuous, very important and I hope that it does actually uh, launch uh, in in the coming years on the scale and size that you'd anticipate and hope for. But let's turn for a moment down to some some military matters. In in a recent interview that I I read you mentioned that the war in Afghanistan would be resolved by way of an evolution, not a quick victory and not a quick loss, but an evolution. Now, what I'd like to know is whether or not you feel that's inevitably the case for democracies or law-abiding states, when in conflict with non-state actors or terror organizations, for example, to take that a little bit further and to bring it home to, to my country, the state of Israel, there we regularly come into conflict with terror organizations with whom we share a border. So these organizations are not in distant lands. We share a border with them. We have, for example, Hezbollah to the north and Hamas to the south. And because of the proximity of the threat, I would argue that a resolution through evolution is not a policy that's acceptable or perhaps palatable or tenable for the citizens or the soldiers of Israel. But I do want to say that I'm actually a minority voice when it comes to that opinion. Now, do you feel, to come back to the beginning of my question, that resolution by evolution is the only reasonable outcome to be expected when combating non-state actors, or are you speaking specifically in the case of Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, that is a really thoughtful question, Benjamin. And I'm not sure of my answer. I'm going to tell you my reaction to it, because I thought a lot about that question, uh, but I'm not confident that I'm right. I went to the, the Northern border of Israel about two weeks after you fought your war uh, in 2006. And then I went down to Gaza and stood out there and with the division commanders in both locations and we talked about it. And we talked about the term mowing the grass, yes. which you, you'd be very familiar with. And what that really means is the grass grows, the threat rises and you mow it. And what happens is, there's still grass under there, there's still soil, water, sun. And so the grass is going to grow again, unless you do something about it. Um, I would say that in many cases, like Afghanistan, for one, you have a Taliban opposition to essentially a Northern Alliance uh, controlled government that is not neither side strong enough to win outright and they they've yin and yang back and forth a couple of times and they have not been able to come together and form a viable government that the people have trust in that that is not uh corrupt so corrupt that it that it guarantees the other side the opposition's always going to have fertile ground to go in um clearly i would have loved to see a quick victory there and then afghanistan move forward but That's why I talk about evolution. What's going to happen is, in in the case of Afghanistan, the people are just going to determine what's livable. Now, this may take quite a long time, actually. Um, I don't think the Taliban, if they are able to come back, and take the whole country because there are parts in the north where uh, the Tajiks and others just won't lose because it's their survival. And similarly, it's it's hard to eradicate the reason for the Pashtun-dominated Taliban. I... So it gets back to unless you get to the root cause of a problem, if, you know, I remember people talking about IEDs, improvised explosive devices. What do you do about it? The first thing we did in Iraq was we started bolting armor on unarmored vehicles. All right. Then we got really clever and we started putting um, jammers on our vehicles so that we would jam the signals that they were using to set off the IEDs. We thought we were clever. And then they used uh, light beams optically done. And we put these things, arms on the front of our vehicles to trigger them early and and do them. But you never solve the problem unless you get at why they're replacing IEDs. Why are they building them in place? And what's the reason? What's the motivation? And if you can't address that, all you're going to do is be in a tactical seesaw. Now, nobody likes that because... If somebody hears we have a terrorist problem or if we have an insurgent problem, and if I was to stand on the stage against, you know, in front of a group of average Americans, and I was to answer the question and say, we're going to go kick their ass, we're going to do X, we're going to solve that problem, people would cheer. Mm -hmm. If I said, you know, it's probably going to take a generation and a half, we're going to have to put money into this, we're going to have to build this, we're going to have to do education, we're going to do so and so. I don't think I'd get an enthusiastic response, but I'm convinced that's the only solution to the problem. You know, I spent much of my life in counterterrorism and, and during a period of my uh, service, <clears throat> we were in the highest intensity counterterrorist fight in America's history. And for five years, I led that. And I mean, the amount of bloodshed was extraordinary. But even in the moment I told people, we're not winning this fight. All we're doing is giving time and space to till till other people with other forces can change the dynamics. We can keep, you know, the barbarians away from the gate for that period, but it's going to be very, you know, a bloody affair. Now that was necessary, and I, I believe today that that was critical, essential to do. But it wasn't a fix. We weren't curing the disease. We were just dealing with, you know, symptoms in the moment. In, in my personal opinion.
0: Thank you. And I, I very much appreciate somebody of your stature and experience saying I'm not sure that I know the answer. You know, we don't we don't readily hear that, as, as, not as frequently as I would like. So, so thank you again for your candor. For the remainder of my time, I'm going to try and get three questions out in the next 10 to 12 minutes with you, Stan, if that's OK. I want to try and place Israel and its relationship with the United States of America, particularly in a military sense or in a defense sense, if you like, on the front burner. So, Let's begin by talking a bit about the move or the redesignation of the State of Israel from being under the U command, the European command over to central command. Israel moved into CENTCOM from uh, UCOM. Now, I'd like to know what, in your view, is the reason for that? What's the virtue of that? But I'd particularly be grateful if you could apply your answer to the Abraham Accords and speak to how those may have facilitated this adjustment and what the virtuous outcomes of that adjustment are likely to be? Just his history.
1: Um, I was always taught that Europe uh, was UCOM was responsible for Israel because it was very awkward to have the UCOM commander or to have the central command commander go to Egypt, go to Saudi Arabia, and then go to Israel. So the idea was to carve. Israel out and have another US commander deal with them so you don't have the same person building relationships, making friends, flying airplanes from one to the other. I I sort of get that. At the same time, that's not recognizing the reality of where Israel actually sits. And if you look at the problem set of stability in the region, Israel security, and whatnot, whenever you Divide a problem in pieces, then nobody owns it, you you get an incomplete response to it. And so I think the idea of moving Israel back geographically or in command and control wise makes sense. I think that uh, we have got to look at security in the we, the United States, have got to look at security in the region holistically. We have in the past and we will in the future, and that irritates all the participants. Because if you take a big view in 1947 uh, and then 48, when the United States leaned forward and recognized Israel as a state, immediately parts of the Islamic Arab world turned on the United States and our stature with them changed significantly. We had been in a a special place because we weren't the British and we weren't the French. we just didn't have that colonial legacy. So people didn't hate us for that. So as a consequence, we got oil deals. We got all kinds of stuff in the 30s. And then once we recognized Israel as a state, that changed it. People suddenly said, OK, we know what you really are. And so it, it changed the dynamic. For the worse, obviously, because when you, when you have a harder dynamic, you have less influence, it's harder to work things. So the United States has got to look holistically, which means we're always going to do less than Israel wants um, and less than our Arab or our other Arab allies want, because we'll be trying to to do a balancing act. We'll be trying to, to get people to the table and whatnot. That can feel very frustrating sometimes, because when I was a young person, I remember the 67 war very, very. I was uh, in seventh grade, and then when I was at West Point, we came in one day and the October 73 war had erupted. And I mean, there's no getting around it, the the sympathy, the automatic connection was with the Israelis for lots of reasons. Uh, But the reality was, when, when you have a situation like that in the region, if you can't think long term and holistically, unless one side is going to be wiped out and done away with, you're going to have to figure out solutions to the problem. And so I think that things like the Abraham Accords, the, the move to norm, normalization are good. I think that uh, there's, a, there's been a big move on the part of many of the Islamic states in recognizing the reality of Israel. And I won't even say that, you know, whether they like it or not. That is the reality. There is a state of Israel. It is stable. It's not going anywhere. I sometimes describe it to people. It's like the rock in the shoe of that uh, region. Whenever they walk, they're reminded it's there, which is irritating to a lot of people, as you know. But but I think the longer you go, and people accept certain things as realities. Then you can move to something maybe more stable, maybe more long term. And of course, that's you know, you never, you never go back to what I said about insurgencies, what you're never going to solve any problem as long as the the root cause of the problem is there. It will come back in different manifestations. So I, I think there's a lot, there's room for continued evolution.
0: We hope you're enjoying this podcast a product of the Miriam Institute. The Miriam Institute was established in order to provide a forum in which leading Israeli experts of diverse and disparate political and ideological perspectives could come together and share their experience, expertise, and opinions about the State of Israel for the consideration of our readership, listeners, and viewers overseas by way of online content and in-person presentations, lectures and events. You can learn more about these initiatives via our website www.miriaminstitute.org. All of the work that we undertake is made possible by way of tax-deductible donations from people like you. We invite you to make a tax-deductible contribution to our organisation via our website and we thank you in advance of your support. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands. You again are somebody who's been advising the administration. I believe, I I don't know if that's in an ongoing capacity. I know it certainly was a very important role during the course of the transition. And of course, you have a history with the administration. So could you tell us how strong the resolve is of this administration, the biden harris administration, to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon? And do you feel that they will pursue their strategy by way of negotiations, uh, re-entering into the JCPOA, or do you think there may be other means brought to bear?
1: Yeah, I have not spoken to the administration about this issue, so I don't have direct knowledge, so I can't speak for it. I, I, will, I will give my guess based upon knowing President Biden from before, knowing his role, knowing uh, General Austin or Secretary Austin and whatnot. I think two things are going to happen. I think one is there is going to, of course, be an effort to bring back the accords with a very real objective of preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear power, nuclear armed power. Um, I think they will lean hard into that. And I think they will also lean hard into trying to curtail Iran's other activities in the region, which were which are very much not helpful. You know, some of the things they do uh, are, you know, are almost acts of war. And so there's a there's a frustration there. Now, if you step back, though, and, and I am now guessing what people think back in the back of their minds, I'm not sure. Stopping Iran from from producing nuclear weapons is increasingly problematic. If they really wanted to do that, I'm not sure we could do it with an acceptable limits, i.e. the military action it would take to do that because they've spread their nuclear uh, capacity out to a number of locations, they have the expertise and all that guess. If they really wanted to get nuclear weapons, and they wanted to even advertise the fact that they had them, I'm convinced, short of a full invasion of Iran, that you you probably couldn't stop them. So the only way to stop them is to convince them that as members of the the world order, they are more advantaged to not have them than to have them. Mm-hmm. That's a tough sell because, you know, every nation that has nuclear weapons gets more respect than one that doesn't. It's just the reality of it. I mean, we, we claim, we. It wasn't that way. But if I were an Iranian, I would want nuclear weapons. If I were an Iranian, I would pursue that policy because once I had them, they would be treated differently. So, you know, that's therein lies the challenge. Um, but it's possible that Iran could be convinced that economically and politically that it is the price of attaining nuclear weapons and at least being a public uh, publicly nuclear armed member isn't worth it. But but I, I give that a less than 50% chance. Uh, I, I just think that they will push ahead to get them. And at some point we will all have to just live with that new reality.
0: Thank you, Stan. In a moment I'm going to ask for our first cadet to ask a question that will be Cadet Travis. Alan, if you could have Cadet Travis at the ready. Stan, I want to finish my part of the interview with a question of you. It it goes back to a seminal moment in terms of popular culture and and many of us learning about uh, even more about you than we already knew by way of your, your military career. And that's the Rolling Stone interview. And I'll tell you why I'm asking it. We live in an era of cancel culture. People just go away because of something they've said or something they're said to have said. Even in the Bible, and I don't say this with, with a particularly religious fervor, but I, I remember from the teachings of my father and of my mother, that there's a point at which God is said to be about to eliminate the people of Israel. And Moses turns around and says, if that is to happen, blot out my name. And in the following uh, weekly portion of, of the Bible, his, his name is actually, actually not mentioned, I believe. I believe I've got the chronology correct. In other words, it's such a sensitive issue to remove a person's personality that even if you say it in defense of something great, you're punished for doing so. Now, you gave this Rolling Stone interview, you have not gone away, far from it, you have shown your actions after that to be an incredible example of forgiveness, of also self-forgiveness, and you've also forged this wonderful, enduring relationship with uh, President Biden. And I wanted to ask you to speak on that, about how an error of judgment or or even exposing oneself to a mischaracterization or an accurate characterization of, of what's said is something that you can come back from, you can own and you can proceed from. And I specifically wanted to do that with the cadets on the line, because let's face it, no cadet is ever going to ask a general of your stature that question. So could you talk to us about it?
1: Yeah, no, Benjamin, thanks for the question and the way you asked it. Just for those who may not be aware, in June 2010, an article came out in the Rolling Stone magazine, which in the course of about 36 hours led to me offering my resignation to President Obama and accepting it. Now, What had happened was we did a lot of press because I felt like we had to try to build war. And this freelance reporter writing for the Rolling Stone came over and he spent time with us. He didn't spend a lot of time. It wasn't like he was embedded for weeks. He was with us for a couple of two, three-day sessions and very little time with me personally, but in the staff, but he was there. He wrote an article that we thought was going to be a puff piece about you know the camaraderie of this team that had been to war together for so long. In fact, he came to Paris where I'd been asked to go meet with military and political leadership to build up support for the war. My wife was there. And so he came to this bar where my staff had gathered. They'd asked my wife and I to come. And he saw us drink beer and talk afterward. And as we walked back to the hotel, my wife said, I'm really glad the reporter was there because he saw you guys as the team you are. We were a German officer an Afghan officer, a couple of Brit officers, a French foreign legionnaire, you know, it was about 10 of us that were my personal staff. And of course, when the article came out, that was portrayed as this drunken brawl thing. I mean, my wife was there. So anyway, um, so the article was different than I think the reality was, but that doesn't matter, because the article comes out and it creates this Perceived pressure between the military who doesn't respect the administration, the civilian administration, not. And guess what? It's my responsibility. Even if I think the article is not accurate or fair, it's certainly not fair for the president of the United States suddenly to have this kind of problem, political and PR problem, thrown on his desk by one of his commanding officers. So it's my, it's my issue. So I am asked to fly back to the United States. I had already prepared my resignation, went into the president, and he was wonderful. He said, what happened? And I said, I really don't know. I mean, I haven't done investigation. However, I do know the article came out. And so here's my resignation. If you want it, take it. I will never be bitter about it. If you don't want to take it, you want to tell me to shut up and go back and keep working. I'll do that, too. What do you want? And he says, you know, it, it hurts me, but I'm going to accept it. Now, I've been in the Army for 34 years as an officer at that point. I've been at four years West Point before that. I've been an Army brat before that. I was born in an Army hospital. I've never not been a soldier in my mind, either a future soldier or a soldier. And in an instant, I'm not. I mean, literally in an instant. And not only am I not in the military anymore, I'm on the the ticker of the TV every 30 seconds for, you know, as long as a story lasts two or three days. And I've got pundits opining about what a bad guy I am. Some people who know nothing about it, but you know, they're, they're gonna give an opinion anyway. My 86 year old father's watching this at home, retired general. My son who's a college student is subjected to this. And my wife, who I'd been married to at that point for almost 34 years, who had been with me from cadet on, um, suddenly it's all gone. So I, I go home from the White House, literally straight to Fort McNair, because I'd flown from Pakistan or from Afghanistan, and she was living in quarters of McNair. And I go into the quarters, and Annie didn't think that this was going to happen. She'd been told by the chief chairman that the president would not accept it, whatever. I walked in, and I told her it's all over. I resigned and she she looked at me and she said good we've always been happy and we'll always be happy and maybe that's the pivotal moment of the rest of my life because from that moment on with her sort of guidance and help i had two ways i could have gone i could have been an aggrieved bitter old general I could have spent the rest of my life relitigating that, saying the article was unfair. You know, I could have done any of that that stuff. Or I could not. I could just accept that what's happened happened and we could go forward. And that's what we did. And we didn't sit down and say, we're going to go forward. She just signaled that. And then from that moment on, I decided that what I was going to do was I was going to try to conduct myself in the future in a way so that anyone who had met me or or who had worked for me before had placed their faith in me, felt like, okay, that article was an aberration. I was right to have believed in it. And those people who would never met me before and met me for the first time and were expecting something because what they'd seen in the article, they would meet something else and they'd go, well, that's not congruent with, with that depiction. And that was the best I could do and I wouldn't ever worry about the article. I mean, does it hurt inside? Yeah, it still hurts. 11 years later, still hurts. Now it hurts a little less every year because nobody ever wants an asterisk next to their name. You know, every time i am introduced or written about an article, somebody's got to put some allusion to that. He was a successful general until, you know, nobody likes that. But the reality was by facing Ford, it did two things. One, it caused me to, to focus on things I could control in the future and, and care about those. And it reminded me, it, it, it retaught me some humility. Um, I, I had gone up for promotion to major when I was a captain and I was a hot shot captain and I was considered below the zone and I didn't make, and I didn't. I wasn't hurt until I saw that most of my my friends had made it below the zone. And so I felt like, ah, the army's unfair, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a great lesson earlier in my career that, you know, guess what? Wake up here. This was a much bigger lesson later in my life that said, you're going to fail. Everybody's going to fail. You're going to get divorced. You're going to do something that that isn't the way you planned it. And how you react to it is your call. You control that. You can't even control what people write about you. You can't rewrite the history books, but you can control how you act. And I I think that's the best decision I ever made. It's the best choice of a course. And of course, it's worked out magically. My life ever since I left the service has been just lucky after lucky after lucky. I mean, I'm on here today. So... You know, I can't complain about anything, Uh, but. You know, I'm not saying I wish that had happened. I'm saying I'm I'm glad that I learned the lessons that have worked out for me.
0: Thank you, Stan. It's been a real privilege for me to interview you. And and thanks for dealing with that subject so candidly. I'm now very pleased for the balance of our time. And I know you have a hard stop at, at quarter after the hour. But for the balance of our time. Let's get the cadets to speak to. They're all ISAP alumni. They were with us in Poland and in Israel in 2019. And we're very proud and privileged to have them with us today. And I'd like to begin, if I could, with the question from Cadet Travis Afuso. Travis, if you would, the the floor is yours.
2: Thank you very much, sir. Good afternoon, General McChrystal. My name is Cadet Travis Afuso, class of 2022. Before I get into my question, I want to thank the Miriam Institute for the opportunity to speak here today and also for the incredible opportunity to learn more about the history, culture, and possible future of the State of Israel during our ISAB tour in 2019. And sir, of course, thank you so much for being here with us today as well. After a career of service as an Army officer and many years spent since then speaking and writing about leadership, you have thought a lot on the subject. And uh, as a current leader in the Corps and a future leader for our Army, I've been doing a lot of thinking about leadership recently as well. And I've come to believe, sir, that passion is one of the key qualities in a highly successful leader. Sir, what do you think is the role of passion in an effective leader? And how do you remain passionate throughout your career and continue to inspire those around you to share that passion as well?
1: Travis, first, thanks for what you're doing and going to do for for the Army and for soldiers and for families, and thanks to all your peers as well um you know passion is really easy for certain things you're going to get certain opportunities in the military where you go at them and passion just comes automatically and so you'll throw yourself into it and the people around you will benefit from that because you believe and and it's exciting It will be harder when you get at points where you are put in a staff job in the Pentagon and you are a major and you are making, or a colonel and you're making copies, or you're working for a boss that's not very inspiring and you're doing a job that isn't very interesting or very important. And then the question is, what are you passionate about? Because you'll be looking for the passion for the mission or the passion for the task in front of you. And the, the most effective leaders I've ever known balance that passion and they can maintain it in two ways the first thing they do is they are passionate about who they are they identify a series of things about themselves and their passion manifests itself in self-discipline it says i will maintain my values my integrity i will maintain my dignity i will maintain my humanity how i treat people i will maintain my generosity and they become <clears throat> incredibly passionate about trying to be the person that they, they want to be. Now, you're never the person you want to be. You're always a little short of that. And you have days when you're far short of it. But but they maintain that passion. And the next thing is they maintain passion for the people they are around. They They become completely dedicated to the welfare of others. It's funny that The most impressive leaders I've ever seen are in shit situations, you know, um, maybe lousy jobs, maybe, you know, dead end jobs are not going anywhere, but they maintain those passions and it just rubs off and it becomes it. That sounds really hard to do, but actually become reinforcing. They become self-reinforcing because as you do them, you'll feel better about them. And after a while, they will be you. And your passion will be things you admire and, you'll, and it will go that way. And so that's why I would say, think about what you really are, who you really, what you're really here for. You know, if you think you're here to save the nation and get a statue on the plane, that might work out for you. But the odds are it won't. The odds are if you can maintain passion for the for the people who serve for you in your career, if they go, wow, he was special, you won.
0: Thank you very much, Gerald. Our next question comes from Cadet uh, Alexandra Martin. Could we have Alexandra unmuted? And Alex, you you have the floor.
3: Yes, thank you, Benjamin. And, uh... Thank you so much, General McChrystal, for being with us um, and doing this interview. And thank you, um, Miriam Institute, for um, giving us this opportunity to listen and ask questions. Um, sir, at the beginning of this interview, we briefly spoke about uh, your initiative for a year of national service. Um, I find this really intriguing because on the Israel Strategy and Policy Tour, um, I was really impressed and inspired by the threat of national service. Um, by the people with who we met um, and really the pride they displayed when we asked them about it. Um, However, in Israel, it's a conscription and many of the young population know and expect this um, upon graduation from high school or their fall in education. Um, How do we in the United States excite a young population and really focusing on that, how um, and where do we invest in high school or college to really change the culture to something um, that incentivizes and really drives that uh, idea of a year of service.
1: Yeah, Alexandra, I've got a number of ideas and I'm not sure what you're right and what you're wrong, but I'll throw them out at you. The first is all of our polling and whatnot, young people are not the problem. We have more demand for service than there are slots. So the first thing we have to do is get off the dime and put the money into those programs so that as many young people as who want to serve right now have the opportunity to do that and you'd sort of test how much demand is really out there but a couple of years ago we had 10 times as many people apply for americorps as we had slots. now i think the problem so is first is resourcing which everybody has to talk about which means money um the second thing i think we do is we say. How do we get to a critical mass? There are 4 million young people in every year group as they come up. I think if we get to 25% doing service, suddenly everybody will know a brother or sister somewhere at your lunch table on your team who did it. Then it gets far easier because it's in the conversation. It's in the expectation. Right now, it's small enough where it's sort of, yeah, I knew somebody who did it, but I can't remember who it was. It's got to be a back. We missed two generations, and this hurts because we really skipped, you know, we we had the whole generation of no military draft, and that's now a generation and a half. Um, and so at at your home, the problem is my generation and slightly younger to me, statistically didn't serve. And so parents aren't apt to look at you and say, okay, Kevin, where are you gonna serve? Because they didn't. And you feel uncomfortable if you ask somebody to do something you didn't do. And and we got to get over that hump. And then the last is incentives. And you say, well, we're going to pay them to do it. You know, a stipend. This is where I think we, we could kill two birds with one stone. The GI Bill was brilliant. It was brilliant because it did something we already wanted to do. And we made value added. We wanted to take that generation of World War II veterans and get them more educated so they'd be better for the workforce. That was good for the country. We also wanted to give them the sense of gratitude for what you've done so that other people in subsequent generations would see that. Um, I think the idea of the equivalent of a GI Bill for people who do civilian service is powerful because we want that generation to go to college. We want people to go to community college and do things. But we don't like the idea of giving people something for nothing. I don't because then they don't value it the same. So if you say serve America or conservation whatever, you come out, if you get a real tangible uh, education benefit, then I think they go, they feel value. I earned this and therefore I'm going to make the most of it. That's what I think we do. And then finally, I'm sorry to ramble on. Companies need to give uh, preferential looks at people who've done national service. Now, a number of them do, but they don't do it enough. I would say that if, if companies would band together and say, if you have done national service like military service, your application's in another pile, you know, if they use a point system, you go a bit higher, because I think that would be very powerful as
0: well. Does that make sense? Thank you very much. Thanks, I appreciate you answering that question. We're going to move to the last of our cadets and then if time permits, we have just a couple more. That's Cadet Kevin Moore. Kevin, the floor is yours. It's wonderful to see you again.
2: Thank you, Mr. Anthony. I appreciate it. Uh, so sir, as I was saying, uh, I'm Cadet Kevin Moore. I'll be graduating like uh, Cadet Martin and I'll commission as an infantry officer into the uh, 2nd Cavalry Regiment in Vilseck, Germany. Very excited for that. Um, As Travis said, again, um, appreciative to the Miriam Institute for the ISAP tour. It was an incredible opportunity that gave me um, a good chance to rethink the way I'm looking at leadership in the context. And again, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak of a man of your stature. So sir, my question was kind of revolving around society today in the United States. So as you may have heard, all cadets are now required to take a course on officership at the Academy in which we kind of discussed the many challenges of being a commissioned leader in the 21st century. Um, one of our recent discussions centered around the balance between conservatism and liberalism in the army, not in the political sense but in valuing tradition versus transformation of the army. Um, so in today's environment of social change, um, how should the army balance its conservative tendencies, its traditional tendencies um, that have given it stability with this desire and need for social change um, in various respects? And what advice would you give to young officers, soldiers, and even civilian leaders in leading the nation and the army through these challenges?
1: Now, I know why you're a star, man, Kevin. um, Really thoughtful question. Um, Here's what I think, and I've been doing a lot of work kind of adjacent to this over the last few years, and here's where I've come down. You're right, the military, if we take you know, conservative and whatnot, not to mean political, mean to be, you know, sort of uh, adhere to tradition and whatnot. I think the military has got to be this extraordinarily delicate balance. We have to identify those things which are sacred to us, the center of gravity of the culture. And I think are they are the values and they're pretty well carried in the uh, the army values. But West Point nearly years ago, duty on our country, if, If you can hold on to the idea that that is sacred, that's not negotiable, that's not flexible. And you know, I'll be honest, I'm a little worried about how the military academy is dealing with the honor code right now. I'm afraid that's sending a mixed message to people. I believe in redemption, but, but you've gotta be careful about it. So you've gotta decide what values need to be held to just to the end, because if you let those slide you're screwed. On the other hand, the military, you're right, is extraordinarily conservative. There was a move to bring back the horse cavalry after the Great War. And you laugh and you go, Well, after World War I, the horse cavalry was dead. Actually, it was World War II. There were off, and I've got my grandfather's cavalry saber in a case right behind me here, but they actually tried to bring it back after World War II. The military has this. You're, you're not even aware of how conservative the, the certain parts of the values are. It's muscle memory that pulls back to things. And you, you felt it at West Point, but you thought it was just West Point. It's not, it's the military. It is people who wanna go back to Sherman tanks if, if they could because, hey, you know, they run good. So what I think you gotta do is hold on to one and then the military's gotta get far more flexible you know, dramatically more adaptable. One of the dangers of doctrine, and I'm going to sound like, you know, a heretic here, is doctrine offers the opportunity for a solution to the problem. And we, we created an entire generation when I was a captain on up that went to the National Training Center. And if they followed doctrine, even if they lost the battle, everybody said, all right, well, you know, all right, the OP4 is very good, but you follow doctrine. So you're good to go. What we should have said is if you lose, you're screwed. As long as you don't do anything illegal or immoral, the only doctrine is winning. Solving the problem. Now, you'll find that doctrine can be a guide on things we know that have worked in the past, etc. <clears throat> but you don't perform doctrine. And then see how it comes out. You solve the problem, and if doctrine is useful, use it. If it's not, create new doctrine. And that needs to be in the psyche of the force. Um, And and that comes hard. You know, it it really takes a tremendous amount of trial and error. you got to put up with people trying stuff that fails and that sort of thing. And the military is always uh, hesitant to do that because you're playing with people's lives or you've got the nation's security. I would argue that slow conservatism will guarantee failure more than being adaptable
0: and and trying things. Thank you very much. We've got two final questions and I'd like to ask Captain Simmer Singh if Captain Singh could ask his question. You have the floor.
4: Thank you, sir. Uh, And the Merriam Institute for the opportunity to engage. uh, Captain Simmer Singh, army engineer, Uh, With teaching in the social sciences department right now. Uh, Sir, uh, by the way, I enjoyed your uh, uh, from the uh, Green Notebook interview a couple days ago. Uh, Good nuggets. Good nuggets of advice there. Sir, in your uh, interview with Axio, uh, you touched on the threat posed by China, especially their uh, rapid weapons modernization. I know the U.S. Army is conducting uh, annual training exercises with India. I know the Marines are shifting uh, to Pacific, specifically working with Australians and Japanese. Uh, do you believe that the military cooperation between these allies uh, can serve as a springboard uh, for more cooperation uh, in diplomatic and economic areas uh, to counter China's uh, rising economic power and, uh, and really their diplomatic influence?
1: Yeah, um, great question. My little brother was an army engineer, so and he's an absolute knucklehead, but I will assume that that, that doesn't matter you. <laughs> but uh, no, th- great question. I think it has to. And I will tell you, uh, if we don't reinvigorate those partnerships, we just can't get there from here because the United States isn't big enough, strong enough to have that kind of reach against a growing China effectively. It's got to be this uh, coalition of different forces, maybe not all forged into one task force or, or alliance against the Chinese, but all credible Organizations that we have enough interoperability with militarily, and then a lot of interoperability with uh, economically and politically, if we're going to if we're going to have a balanced world, because China has created sort of this juggernaut, and they've got—I mean—they've got, I mean, they've got an absolute control in the government, and so they can they can make decisions and go directions that democracies have a harder time doing. Now there are some inherent challenges there, but the reality is it. If we don't do that, then there will be a point at which the United States just doesn't have the ability to contest it. And then uh, China will face a fragmented uh, opposition and they'll be in the driver's seat. And that's uh, that's a lot closer than people think. China has already created a military that is capable of telling us it's too much. the, The cost of going to war with them is too high. You know, they, they've already raised the bar where we can't, you know, take the fleet, put it off the coast and intimidate them anymore. anti ship missiles, we just can't do it. Now they're at the point where they're almost able to say, we'd like Taiwan. And we say, no, we'll defend Taiwan. And they go, how? And you start to look militarily, that's if they really want to take Taiwan, there's not a lot we can do to stop it. We can, we can make it painful, So if we don't have a set of allies and all around the region, if we don't build that, then we are not going to be able to deal with that.
0: uh, My opinion. Thank you very much, Stan. Our final question is Major Sarah Martin. Sarah, you have the floor.
3: Sure. Sir, thank you for being here with us. I'm Major Martin. I teach in the Department of Social Sciences. And my question concerns Israeli-U.S. partnerships. Given your background in unconventional warfare and unconventional thinking, do you believe there are areas of increased opportunity for U.S.-Israeli partnership, whether those are public-private partnerships or within a whole-of-government approach to solving common problems? And um, this could take many directions, but one example that comes to mind is Israel's unique expertise in cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, I think there have to be. And this is the case where, you know, heretofore, we've always had to walk this incredible uh, uh, balancing act because if you, your partnerships with Israel are too strong, other nations complain about it and whatnot, I think we need to be unabashed about. You know, Israel is going to be one of our allies, a very important ally, and we are going to have other allies, too. Now, we won't agree with all of Israel's positions, but the partnership needs to be strong. Um, I think that Israel's got a number of advantages. Right after I took command of Joint Special Operations Command, I went to Israel. I went first to the region and and checked on the forces, and I went to Israel because I wanted to learn things that they had been doing. Some of those were tactical. Some of them were were higher level things. And we developed a a very low key, uh, you know, under the radar screen, but very deep relationship on all things counterterrorism. So I think the answer is what we've got to do is leverage Israel's success and their agility in things like cyber, because there are a tremendous number of things that have come out of uh, cyber organizations in Israel, and I'm staying in contact with some that the United States can benefit from and, and vice versa. Uh, and this is where it's got um, to be open to, I mean, people have got to see it. It's got to, you know, the world's got to sort of accept it. This is what we do. This is a relationship we're going to have. It shouldn't have to be in back alleys or, and, and a lot of business things aren't, but, but it has to be upfront. And all of our allies of different political persuasions have got to buy into that. And this is where American politics get, get tricky. You know, you lean too far, people yell at you one way, lean too far the other. And I just think that, Consistency in American policy in this regard is of value.
0: Thank you very much, Stan. I, I'm so very grateful to you for being with us. Of course, I'm going to bring this in on time. I know you have a hard stop, but it would be remiss of me not to reiterate our profound thanks to a number of people. First of all, again, to Major Nick Lewis at the US Military Academy at West Point, for facilitating the participation of our cadets who I thank most sincerely on behalf of myself and my colleague, Rosie Tepelini, and, of course, the faculty members. And I also would like to thank Colonel Liam Collins and Cheryl Ann in your good offices, and, of course, you for being so gracious with your time. One of the things that I would like our listeners to know and to remember is that we have cadets on this call who came to death camps in Poland. Death camps, very similar to those visited by those cadets, were liberated by troops wearing the uniform, General that you wore for so many years. And it's the same uniform that those cadets will, in time, in a very short period of time, be wearing. That uniform to our people, the Jewish people, to me even as one individual, is synonymous with benevolence to a people that have been torn apart by way of the ravages of the Holocaust, that has been supportive of our state, the one and only Jewish state, the state of Israel, that has been kind to its community of Jews within its own borders. American Jewry has thrived within United States society in a way that was not replicated in Europe, for example. And I want you to know that we are deeply grateful to you for all of the service that you have undertaken, for all of your time here today, and for all that that service is in the cause of, namely building a better greater society with the United States of America at the helm. And I do hope that it will continue to hold that position. General, on behalf of Rosita Panini, on behalf of Alan Langer, my colleague, and on behalf of all of our listeners today, thank you so very much for being with us. May you go from strength to strength. May the cadets go from strength to strength. And also, may I say, it may not yet be the end of your public service to your country. And I hope that you will continue to engage. Thank you so very much, Stan. We're grateful.
1: Thank you so much. And I wish everybody the best. To Captain Singh and Major Martin, thanks for developing cadets. <laughs> thanks for making the future better than it would otherwise
0: be. Thank you so much. Take, take care, y'all. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands. It's our pleasure to provide you with exclusive content about the State of Israel by way of lectures, seminars, debates and position papers featuring Israelis who have been at the heart of policymaking and policy implementation. The Miriam Institute is a US-based 501c3, non-for-profit, for-purpose organization. If you're enjoying this program, why not partner with us today? Join us in our mission to steer, inform and lead the international discourse about the State of Israel. Whether you invest in our campus initiatives, our work in the halls of legislation, or our gold standard tours to the State of Israel for international students and faculty, you can invest in the Miriam Institute today by making a tax-deductible donation to our work. Visit us online to learn more about our legacy and naming opportunities at www.miriaminstitute.org The Miriam Institute, Israel's future in Israel's hands.